0: Welcome to the Latest Forever Blue podcast. Uh, I'm Ian Cheeseman. I'm the presenter of this podcast. It's a Manchester City podcast. So thanks very much. If you're a City fan or you're not a City fan, you're more than welcome to join in. And uh, maybe you will be a Forest fan as well who's listening to this because we have a Nottingham Forest legend, a Manchester City young man who started his career at uh, at Main Road. I've got to say that while he was at City, um, he won the Cup Winners' Cups are the first European trophy that, that City ever won, FA Cup, League Cup. And whilst at Forest, the League, the League Cup, the Charity Shield, the Anglo-Scottish Cup, the Second Division promoted, two European Cups, the UEFA Super Cup. So this is a man who sits at the top table of football, one of the very, very best ever to have played the game. He played under Brian Clough, of course, at Nottingham Forest, under the great Joe Mercer, um, at Manchester City. So, um. I will we'll be joined a little bit later on, also by a Norwegian journalist who's been covering the story, of course, of Haaland and Odegaard in the Arsenal game. And from one of our regulars here on the podcast, Haaland, not to be mixed up, of course, by Haaland, the uh, the City player. But uh, the man who I'm introducing now is uh, Ian Boyer, one of the, the great, great footballers of our time. I should say, by the way, big thanks to Amar Development UK, who are the sponsors of the podcast Uh, Thanks very much to them for their support. You'll know that that big pyramid uh, near Stockport is one of their buildings, which they're developing into a a three-storey event and and restaurant centre. So that's something that they're involved in, but so much more as well. But big thanks to Amar Development. Ian, you... Achieved so much um, in such a short time, really, at City. But before I talk about your career in more depth, one thing I have to mention because this is the first podcast we've done since the passing of Francis Lee, is obviously we've lost one of the the great City players. I I wrote Colin Bell's autobiography and became very close to Colin, Um, so I I am very well aware of the 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 trilogy of great players in Summerby Lee and and Bell and We've still got Mike, thankfully, but we've lost uh, Colin, and now we've lost Franny. Uh, what, what was, what are your memories of, of Francis Lee? Uh, you know, put those into perspective for me on a personal level and, and maybe a playing level as well.
1: Well, Francis was—he uh, was the heart and soul of the dressing room. He was a very, very confident guy. Talked about the Grand Slam. We were going to win all four the League, the FA Cup, the League Cup and the European Cup Winners' Cup he was the one he was full of devilment, full of rascal Uh, I can only too fondly remember that uh, we used to go a train into Wiltshire Park on a Monday morning and we'd uh, drive there and five minutes after we got there the coaches would arrive, of course during that five minutes uh, Francis and Mike Summerby had staged a car crash so when Malcolm turned up, uh, Francis had his head bent over the steering wheel. Mike was had the passenger door open, was hanging out the car. They were they were they were always up to something. There was always something going on, and Francis led that as much as he did um, on the pitch. He was for fantastic, fantastic players. And the more you see of uh, Franny and uh, whatever kind of older uh, recordings you've got, you do appreciate what a, what a top, top player he was. Um, very successful businessman, very, very demanding of everybody at the football club, from the youngest lads, right the way through to the most senior lads. He was uh, a top, top footballer in any generation.
0: It was uh, also went on to be chairman, of course. But you mentioned he was a successful businessman. When you were there, Ian, was he was he already starting that um, toilet paper business, or was that after you gone?
1: <laughs> well, I, th- I think he started it, um, but there wasn't an awful lot talked about it. All all I remember is Mike Summerby and Francis were as thick as thieves, and Mike always used to say about Francis and. Francis, um, Mike would say, "Oh, I could spend a thousand pounds on Franny Lee on clothes for Franny Lee," and he still wouldn't look true. <laughs> you know, he used to. Mike used to hammer him about uh, West Horton and Bolton, but they were uh, they were great, great
0: pals. And and obviously his record stands for itself. I can't help thinking that away from Manchester City, uh, Franny wasn't as appreciated. As, as he was at City I mean I know he went on to Derby and scored that infamous goal just yeah. looking at his face and all the rest of it but uh, you know Colin Bell is he, regarded throughout football as a great, great player even though he was a fairly modest sort of guy um, but generally speaking Franny, despite his personality wasn't always I don't think anyway what do you think as appreciated as maybe he should have been?
1: No, I think that's I think that is correct I think Mark, uh Malcolm knew what he was getting. He he knew he was getting the lad that could play on the right-hand side, as he did when he first came. And then he later uh, became more of a striker. Um, to lots of the public who don't know really the depth of knowledge that they should have about Francis Lee, to Joe public, a lot of them just saw him as a diver because he did he did win a lot of penalties. And that, to some extent, detracted from the true ability that he did he did possess. Uh, there's no question about that. He 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 was a really 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 good player.
0: It's time when he came back to City, and I don't know how much you would know about that Ian, but when he came back, he was seen as quite a controversial figure initially. He came to the rescue of City, you might say, and there was this forward with Franny momentum um, because Peter Swales was an unpopular chairman at that particular time. And Franny was seen as coming in on his white charger to sort of save the club. He didn't need to do that. He'd made his his money from his business. He could have just stayed away and and not risked tarnishing his his legacy. But he took the risk. He came in, he, he put his head above the parapet and for a while, everybody was with him. And then... It didn't go quite well, as well as he'd hoped it might be. And there was I think when he first left and it and it went wrong, um, people did feel it spoiled his, his legacy. But I think this was a man who wore his heart on his sleeve, who cared about what he did, did everything with passion, cared very much about City, and tried to do the right thing. Do you think that's from what you know him as a person, you knew him better than me. Well, Is that think, a fair way of summing it up? I
1: think that's I think that's absolutely 100% um francis was never one that was not going to put his head above the parapet he was always going to take a chance and where that involved uh manchester city uh he didn't see it as being a risk he he, he almost would he o- would almost see that as being his responsibility his duty um if the club's struggling i'm going to be there and i'm going to help them out okay uh things didn't go as well as he'd hoped as well as anybody'd hoped, but uh, nonetheless, uh, when it co- when it came to the to the moment to to do his bit for Manchester City, no matter how much uh, finance he had to find to do it, uh, he was there for them.
0: Uh, well, obviously, it's a sad loss to to, to football, to, and yeah. to his family, and everything like that. So everybody's uh, passing on their best wishes to his his sons and his family, and uh, yeah. I'll I'll certainly never forget Franny, who was a great, great player and a great Manchester City man. You were a a great player, not only for City, where you started your career, and you you were there, friends and and mates with Franny and Colin and Glyn Pardo and all the rest of them that were there in that era. Um, But you became better known, really, for your achievements at Nottingham Forest. But when you look back on your Relatively short time at City in terms of first-team appearances. Do you look back fondly? Is is that where your heart is? I mean, I, I suppose if you were talking to a Forest audience, you'd say your heart was at the City Ground, wouldn't you?
1: <laughs> well, i i i always I always think that the the place where you are most successful, you kind of have that association with. Um, but that doesn't s- say anything away from take anything away from where you learnt um, how to do things, how to be a professional, how to conduct yourself on and off the pitch. Uh, That's the kind of thing that I learnt at Manchester City. Every game I played, every game I played for Manchester City was always as a teenager. So the the lessons I'd learned at uh, Manchester City, stood me in good stead for the rest of my career and I, I was always um, it was always one of the first results I would look for would be man City okay um not with the same passion as you know a, a, a true man city supporter would because I had uh, I had another job to do um but uh, you don't lose you don't lose what you, what, what has been. Uh, my first love for a football club.
0: Your career was stellar. I mean, you won a European trophy with City. You won two European Cups, Champions League in modern parlance with Nottingham Forest, which was unheard of back then, you know, a club like Nottingham Forest. You won league titles, you won Cups. You've done everything. I mean... You must pinch yourself. I mean, you you sit there on your rocking chair, you know, with the pipe and slippers, and think, "Wow, how did I do all that?" Yeah.
1: Well, um, I'm I'm very I'm very grateful that uh, people like yourself, Ian, you you announced me as winning the FA Cup. I never won the FA Cup. I was uh, I made my debut for Man City as a 17 year old in November. 1968. And Man City won the FA Cup, of course, with the Neil Young goal, 1969. Uh, I was actually sat in the stands when Manchester City won the 1969 Cup. So I never did win the FA Cup, but I'm only too grateful to have won the, old, the other competitions that you, you did talk about.
0: But when you're uh, playing in a, in, a, in a competition, even if it's in the early stages, you're part of it, aren't you?
1: Well, you're part of it, but did I play? I think uh, I'm trying to think where our first game was that year, could, Ed, could you remember it? I know we played away at Hull at some stage. Was that the f- the same year?
0: Well, I'm pretty sure that you took part in the FA Cup that, that year, if I'm mistaken, then... Well, if
1: I did, I'm going to claim an FA Cup medal because I haven't
0: got one. <laughs> well, it was different in them days because you only got the medal if you were in the final, you only got... Yeah. Uh, yes. the, the league title uh, medals if you played a certain number of games and all that. It's different now. Everybody who's involved gets one and yeah. the washing lady gets one, don't they? I mean, it's yeah. just how football's changed.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, um,
1: but no, I I consider myself to be very lucky. I, I left Forest uh, as a teenager and I don't think, mm-hmm. I don't think it should be club policy to sell, to sell anybody, uh, as a teenager, if they've showed any degree of possibility. I mean, when I was 18, I think I scored 15 goals as an 18 year old, which was great. By the time I was 19, I'd, I'd been sold. Uh, now, sometimes Malcolm used to change from, you know, you were, you were the flavor of the month with Malcolm till the next day, you know, you weren't flavor of the month with Malcolm, but, um, I went away from Man-, Man City, and I had to get on. and And I was I went to uh, a team called Orient, and it wasn't late Orient; it was they were called Orient at the time. And I played there for two years, and really, uh, I had a lot of growing up to do there because I went away from. Okay, I lived an hour from Manchester. I was one of the first non-Mancunians that um, Manchester signed as Manchester City signed as uh, as an apprentice. Um, it seemed as if it was yesterday, my first day at, at the club, uh, Harry Godwin, uh, who was a fantastic guy, tremendous funny guy, he um, he had nowhere to for me to stay. So he put me up for the very first night. They put me in the Grand Hotel. Uh, Tony Bocker just signed for the club and he was also staying at the Grand Hotel. And the next day, Harry Godwin, not, not being a driver, he picked me up we're walking to the bus stop from the Grand Hotel and he said to me and he said, we can't put you in there again tonight, Ian. That cost the club £4.10 shillings. We can't afford that. And the second night, I actually spent the night at Ray Hatton's uh, mother's house, father of Ricky Hatton. So Ray and his family were, were great with me but the That side of uh, Manchester City, uh, having digs for people and getting non mancunian lads to the club was something new. So um, I thoroughly enjoyed my time as an apprentice. Uh, Some great, great friendships that I still have uh, contact now. I go to most of Man City games now. And as much as I enjoy the football and I really enjoy take my grandson, and go because I meet people that were apprentices with me, um, the likes of Dave Gibbons. Some of these lads, not all of them, you would know, um, but they were there, and they they uh, they would give anything for Manchester City. Uh, people like Dave Gibbons, David Cunliffe, uh, John Clay, Stan Horn. Stan Horn goes uh, regularly, so we get up there. Ian Meller, um so we have a chat and we talk about the the, the good old times. Um, but that was that was me. I was I was very very lucky to work with uh, with Malcolm, uh, Johnny Hart and and Dave Ewing. Um, but I, as I say, I had to get on and I had uh, two years in London. I didn't like London. I couldn't really get along. I couldn't. I was originally from a village near Chester. And to go from there to London, it's, yeah, you know, you'd want to go out on a Sunday and next thing is you'd be in an hour's traffic jam. You think, oh, no, I don't really need this. So um, the great, and I say great, the great Dave Mackay gave me the chance to leave London and go to to Nottingham. So I, I, I jumped at that. Uh, to anybody that doesn't remember Dave Mackay, he was um, a really, really tough, hard, no nonsense uh, midfield player would call them now wing half map as it was. Um, so I played for him uh, for two games. He then left and he went to he went to Derby County and the, Derby County won the league. So uh, so then we ha- had a period at Forest where there was a lad by the name of Alan Brown became the manager. We had two years of him where the club. Uh, okay, we got to the. We got to the quarter-final of the FA Cup. We had that notorious um, occasion away at Newcastle where their pitch was invaded, the very first pitch invasion. And uh, we had five members of that um, squad that in 1974 that uh, actually stayed at the club and became part of the team that won the European Cup. We always... The people in Manchester call, call it BC, before Clough. So there was the five of us. There was myself, Martin O'Neill, John Roberts, and Tony Woodcock, and Viv Anderson. And uh, that five became the backbone of what became um, the top, top teams at at Nottingham. So I was very lucky to work for some great, great people. Brian Clough, obviously. There was a, another trainer there called Jimmy Gordon, Peter Taylor um so i've been very very lucky
0: obviously very talented as well let's not underestimate that <laughs> well you, I, I i again you see
1: when brian clough to the came to the club i was playing as a striker and uh we had he signed john o'hare and he signed oh he didn't sign but barry like alec barry butlin was at the club and um they played one pre-season tournament and I was out of contract. So myself, John Robertson and Martin O'Neill, we didn't go on the tour to Germany. Anyway, they didn't do particularly well in Germany. Um, but they had another little pre-season soiree to Northern Ireland where they played two games. Um, I played in the two games. In the two games, we scored six goals. I scored five and the other one was no goal so I was thinking, well, I'm in a strong position now. I'm going to be playing as a striker. And I did that for about two months and uh, I was doing OK. And then he came to one uh, morning and he said, Ian, he said um, I've got three strikers. I want to play all of you three people because I like the character of you three people. And he said that the three strikers, you're better equipped than John O'Hare. Or Barry Butler to play in midfield, and that's really that was the making of my career was to change, and if you like, effectively find a position that was suited to me. <clears throat> so again, um, you know, a degree of a degree of uh, fortune, um, but a willingness to to learn and to work.
0: Well, maybe a good question to finish this nostalgic section and bring us up today, is, which has been fascinating to listen to, really, really good to listen to, is to compare Mercer Allison, Brian Clough and Pep Guardiola. I mean, obviously, you're not been <laughs> in the dressing room with Pep, but you can, you've got a unique perspective to be able to compare those, haven't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. May I start by saying, I think that Malcolm Allison and Brian Clough, they were big pals, They were were together on those football panels. They were very alike in as much as they were all uh, very confident, um, thought that they knew more about football than anybody else. And I dare say that Pep comes into that. I don't know Pep, but I'm sure that if you were to really press him, he would consider himself to be as knowledgeable about football as anybody else. And, and, Certainly, none of us are going to ever say he isn't, because uh, the man is an absolute genius. Um, the way he handles players, the way he handles the media, you know, I mean, he's a, he's an absolute um, world-beater. <clears throat> um, Malcolm was um, a coach first. Um, Brian Clough was a man-manager first. Um I suppose Pep is both um, yeah I think I think Pep embodies more of what the modern manager or coach is about now, whereas um, Malcolm and Brian Clough had uh assets that they were fantastic at, um, but I just see Pep as being the complete overall number
0: one for me. That's some tribute. Right, let's let's talk about more contemporary things. We're recording this on the day after City have gone down to Arsenal and lost second successive uh, league defeat. Uh, No Rodri playing in the game and three... Uh, defeats while he's not being in the team the one game he did play in was the away game in Leipzig in the Champions League and they won that game so um, let's bring in Harlan now who's been listening to this very patiently and and with a promise by the way that we're going to hear from a Norwegian journalist in a moment as well Uh, but Harlan um, just ask me or, or tell me I should say what your verdict really is on on what you've seen and um Let's see if Ian's impressed by your uh, football knowledge, which I always am.
2: Well, for, for saying um, credit to credit to yourself for what you've won in your career, and and, and I'm honoured to be on the podcast with somebody that's won two Champions League. So uh, I, I'm the European, cup winners, cup with City.
3: Um, Don't forget um, that I'm a
2: huge. I'm am a huge. You know, I'm I'm, I'm I'm 29. I'm a huge admirer of Brian Clough. You know, I I, I I've watched documentaries. I've watched interviews. I've gone through YouTube for years and years and years, looking at you know interviews of him, watching the real Revy interview, not just the one that that, that they showed on, the Damned United, the film, of course, which was almost kind of, I don't, I don't want to say a misrepresentation, but I know his family wasn't, his family weren't very impressed with the film. And obviously it painted Brian to be to be a, a, a culprit and Don Revy to be a victim. And I think that when you actually understand the backstory of all of that, the Leeds, United, the Derby County and the Nottingham Forest, Periods in Brian Clough's career, you get to understand the man. So to, to speak to someone that played under him, um, and to speak to somebody that won a lot under him, um, is, is 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 an honour. So yeah, I did sit there patiently then, and and in all mm-hmm. of you, and that's not to blow smoke up your backside. That's to tell you that I genuinely think that you're a you're a class act. Um, back to the game in hand, Ian. Well, you you know that I I'm a huge admirer of Pep. Um, I didn't start off as a huge admirer of Rodri. I think he's come on leaps and bounds. He is definitely a stalwart in this team. And he's somebody that I honestly believe built, uh, Pep has built this team around. And in theory, that's ended up coming back to us in the end. The fact that we've we've seen him as such a focal point in, in the last couple of seasons. The fact that when we've lost him, it's been such a drastic um, difference. Um, I think that, that partly comes down to Rodri's one naivety, two laps in concentration. And... Yeah. Yeah, I think naivety is the right word. I was going to think of another word, but I think naivety sums it up correctly. I think he was stupid. I think he yeah. was silly. And I think he was rash for what he did against Nottingham Forest. And it's quite apt, really, that you're, you're on the podcast this evening, Ian, considering that you represent that football club. And it, it just happens that, that we're talking about a player here that got himself sent off against your own football club. Morgan Gibbs-White played him a fiddle. He fell for it. And he ruled, him out. He ruled himself out for three games. That, in effect, has cost us. Um, But it's also cost us because Pep has somewhat maybe not been able to find the tactical answers to the problem that that brought with it. And that that sounds mad. And I'm not criticising Pep in any way, shape or form, for, for what we've seen him overcome in the past. But for me, we've just if, if we not found a solution to the problem of having that single pivot, dominant holding midfielder that dictates the play and that's metronomic. and. As good as Kovacic and never, as uh, uh, sorry as good as Kovacic, um, you know, as good as, you know, um, you know the other players in midfield are in terms of Matias Nunes and uh, you know, and even your, your Bernardo Silvers when he plays in in inside, we we've, we've not been able to replicate what Rodri does, and it, and 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 I think that, that the book stops with Pep there, the fact he's not been able to find a tactical solution, the book stops with Rodri for what he did against Nottingham Forest because he he should have thought ahead. And thought that Arsenal was three games away. Now the last city fans saying, Yeah, but when you're on a football pitch and something are up, you don't think that far ahead. He, he should be he should be thinking, if I do something silly here, right? Once he's once he's done it the first time, Morgan Gibbs White's got up and then he's put his hands around his throat. You've made your point. The first time you've acknowledged that he's irritating you a bit. Then Arsenal comes into your mind and you think if I go off and ban, it's probably one of the biggest games of the season, that early on in the season. Do I need to have a bit more about me? As an unofficial captain or one of five captains and as a leader and as somebody that I know that the gaffer has built a team around, To not put myself in a position where I've banned myself for three games.
0: Every point you're making, making, Harlan, is spot on. I don't think anybody who watches football um, would disagree. What worries me a little bit about this, because I totally agree, you know, he's become such a key player, Rodri, is that... If this had happened a year ago, uh, if... if, if I, I write a weekly newspaper column, I've just been writing about this, it's in my head at the moment, and if, if a year ago, as and we've seen, um, by the way, a year ago, Kevin De Bruyne have spells out, Gundogan have spells out, uh, Bernardo have spells out, Rodri obviously hasn't, because he's pretty much played in every game. City have n- never been upset, the rhythm's never been upset, they've still played on. Are we saying now that Rodri is is such a key player that without him, City can't win a game.
2: No, I, I don't think we lost the game yesterday because Rodri didn't play. That's not what I'm saying because that game should have finished nil-nil. Nobody deserved to win it. Nobody deserved to take three points. Both sides deserve to take a point. In the end, the real difference was a deflected strike from Martinelli that's coming off like his head, who I thought was pretty faultless in the game, to be honest with you. Um thought he played really well midweek. I think Vardy had a top game as well. I thought he did a lot of neat stuff. Playing out of position, let's have it right as well. He was a centre-half at Leipzig, playing as a left-back. Um, well, the left-back that then drops into midfield and then plays as a centre-half when Pep wants him to. He's a fluid player. I thought he did really well. He was really neat, really tidy. And I don't think Arsenal really caused us that many problems other than the fact that when the opportunity arrived for Martelli to get a shot off, he got a shot off. And- that could have still happened if Rodri was on the pitch. I'm not disputing the fact that that could have still happened. That transition, that move, that shot could have still been hit. Rodri on the pitch or not. There's been times where he's made mistakes in this team. There's been times where he's been on the pitch and we've conceded silly goals. But you're, always, conceded you're always you're always
0: vulnerable. You're always vulnerable to conceding a goal, whether it's deflection or whatever. Yeah. If you yeah. yourself haven't scored, and last season in the same game. City had scored three, they won 3-1. Yeah, if yeah. there had been a late deflected goal, it wouldn't have actually mattered. Um. So, And here's a statistic that my son um, told me today. Apparently, so far in the nine games that, that have evolved, Everton have created more goal-scoring opportunities than City have in total. Yeah. Now, that yeah. doesn't sound like City, and maybe that explains why Haaland... Hasn't scored as many goals. We're going to hear from this Norwegian journalist in a moment, but whilst I don't, I certainly don't want to sound as if I'm being negative or alarmist or anything like that. I do see at the moment, anyway, a City team with or without Rodri, which is not functioning as well as it did last week. I,
2: I agree. I agree, but I think that you know the point you make is is probably partially correct. But I, I don't know, I listen, if, if City fans have a go at me for this, if people say, oh, you know, he scored 52 goals last season and, oh, you know, he, he's nicked a couple of this. I don't think that Erling Haaland is the player he was last season. He doesn't look as interested as he did last season. His movement's not as sharp. He seems a bit more lethargic, OK? And I honestly, genuinely think that what we saw last season was a phenomenal season, 52 goals, a lot of sniffing out of space, a lot of fantastic capitalisation goals where he's capitalised on opposition mistakes and he's been jolly on the spot and he's he's been alive when nobody else was. But I almost think Ian that if he'd scored twenty-five or twenty-six goals last season, he'd have been pressure mentally to score another twenty-six this season, if not more this season. What I think Erling Haaland's done in his in his own mind is he scored fifty-two goals, he's hit a climax at fifty-two. Now I'm not saying this is a this is a fact, but potentially psychologically within his own mind, he may have hit a wall. He may have gone, "Wow, I've scored that many goals last year. It doesn't feel as exciting as much. You know, or it doesn't feel as exciting now to to work as hard and to score as many goals again." His hunger for me is less this year because of the success that he had last year. He's been a victim of his own success.
0: Well, motivation is a great subject to talk to Ian about. I mean, you had success at City as a teenager. You went to Forest and you won so many trophies. Once you've got a couple of these trophies in the bag, when you were playing, I don't know whether it was different then, but in terms of psychology, sure, it was the same. How did you keep yourself motivated? How did Forest, the year after they won the European Cup, go and do it again?
1: Well, Brian Clough said uh, the week after we've won um, the league championship, the first division was, that our biggest opponent next season will be complacency. And if I so much as sniff one ounce of complacency in the dressing room, I'm going to get rid of all of you. And it was very, very powerful, whether in fact he ever meant he was going to get rid of all of I'm sure there's a degree of uh, um, nonsense in there. Um, but I always thought that the, the greatest motivator was knowing that there was somebody else in your dressing room that was only too willing to take your place. And I'm not sure, okay, we're talking about Harlan. I'm not sure that there's anybody in that dressing room that's capable of taking his place. So, I I differ to I, I I differ really. I I just think that Harland I see Harland as being um, a finisher of, of chances. I don't see him being. Um, he's not the way Mike Summerby would go past somebody. He's not the way Francis Lee would go past somebody. He's he's a he's a penalty box finisher for me. And like all finishers, you are dependent upon a degree of service. Now, I'm not saying that you can't make a goal for yourself. Okay, you can do. Of course you can. Um, But you are reliant on on a service. Now, has this team this year played as well as it did last year? I happen to think that the team last year that won the uh, Champions League and the league and everything else, I happen to think that's way, way, the best team that City's ever had. It remains to be seen whether this team this year will be as good because the, at the moment I, I, I see them I see them maybe missing the goals that uh, Gunder once scored. Um, we have, like everybody else has, we have our injury problems. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne, is a fantastic passer. We all have great passes and Manchester City's strength is passing the ball. But he's the one out of all the City players that could play a killer ball that would put Erling Haaland in behind and in on goal. Uh um,
2: Yeah. I, I honestly, I honestly genuinely think though that, that even Kevin De Bruyne a fully fit is struggling to find Haaland not through his own ability but through the lack of movement, the lack of, the lack of the lack of drive. I was watching him yesterday and I was I was almost ripping the hair on my head out watching Erling Haaland on the edge of the six-yard bot, on the edge of the box. Kyle Walker's receiving a ball from Bernardo Silva. And we all know the Kyle Walker manoeuvre where he'll receive a ball back, he'll put his foot on the ball, he'll roll it, he'll scan the pitch to play another pass and then he'll roll it out of his feet and he'll look to try and loft one into the bot. And Erling Haaland was looking down at his feet. Everybody else was looking at Kyle Walker. Erling's looking down at his feet. He's flat footed. He's plodding. He's walking. And he's not looking at where that ball is on the football pit. He was he looked completely disinterested. Alvarez is removed from the field of play. Erling stays on. And I, I honestly I don't I don't I really don't care what people say. Whether people say that it's reactionary or not. This is not, this is something I've thought all season. Even last season, he scored 52 goals, and I thought that he wasn't a good enough all-round football player, OK? Ian, I, I, I don't know if you do. You might, and I'm not going to be adious whatsoever. I don't know if you've ever played the game in FIFA. I don't know if you've ever played on a on a games console. But it's Erling Haaland... Take, it's
1: Harland, taken me all day to get on this uh, Zoom yeah, chat. Don't become well, in that FIFA nonsense with me.
2: <laughs> Erling Haaland, OK? And the only reason why I'm going to bring it up is because this is what's going on with football nowadays. Statistics overuse of statistics, ultimate team, computer game stats, and fantasy football. It's it's how people see football now, OK? Erling Haaland is the, is the highest-rated striker on FIFA, OK? Yet, for me, he's not the best all-round footballer that plays up front, OK? So, his shooting is high, OK? He scored one goal from outside the box for Manchester City, OK? Aguero used to take the ball on the half-turn, He'd spin the defender and he'd strike it into the top left-hand corner of a goalkeeper's goal. And he'd do it four or five times a season. Harland... He it.
1: It wouldn't do it 52 times a season.
2: No, no. But this is what I'm saying. Aguero had so many more strings to his ball than what Erling Harland does. You described him before as a, as, a, as a fox in the box, OK? He's not the kind of player that's going to back into a defender on the edge of the 18-yard box, take one touch out of his feet and then take a strike at goal. He just isn't going to do it he, he 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 for me is the kind of player that is reliant on service but when the service doesn't come does look nullified he's also the kind of player that that it, he he needs to search for the service and what I'm saying is he needs to he needs to trigger that pass rather than waiting for the pass to come to him and this season he He's looking for people to play him a ball when he's marked out. You know, yesterday he had two centre halves occupying him. He he was he was he needed to make a burst. He needed to look to to run off the back of someone. He needed to to create an opening for himself. And that's why the ball never came because he didn't look lively. You know, I don't know this is a fact, but I'm looking at the likes of Kyle Walker. I'm looking at the kinds of players that would have been looking to play early in yesterday, early in. in. And I will be looking to ask them and say, did you not play that ball to him because you didn't think that he deserved the pass? Did you recycle it? Did you go somewhere else because you didn't think that your striker, the focal point up front, was ready for that football? He didn't look ready. He looked lethargic. He's looked lethargic all season. He looks flat-footed. He looks like he he isn't isn't at the races. And for me, I think he hit the climax last season. I don't think he's hungry enough.
1: Will you play him in the next game?
2: Well, he took he took Alvarez off the pitch, and Alvarez had done nothing wrong. You could say it was because of fatigue, tiredness. Alvarez will run all day, again. He, he's the kind of player I you know. Look at him early doors. He chased David Raya down and nearly scored. You know what I mean, yeah. that lad is like Tevez. He's like Tevez and Aguero in one man. I've always said it. He's Got the finishing ability of Sergio Aguero, and he's got the work rate and doggedness of Carlos Tevez. He he didn't deserve to come off the pitch yesterday. The man up front deserved to come off the pitch. The big lad that was doing nothing. And Alvarez was punished for things that Erling was doing wrong because Pep wanted to tactically change the game.
0: It's quite the view. Strong views. Let, let, let me use this opportunity because you set this up perfectly, Harland. I've been speaking to a Norwegian journalist who, as you can imagine, is uh, you know f- his focus was on Odegaard and Haaland, And he was at the Emirates Stadium. Now, I played this for Ian before, so he's heard it. But I know you haven't heard it, Harland. So you, you're going to have to just... Um, react without knowing what he said
2: is it the one that you put on the vlog?
0: yeah he was on the uh, the vlog a little bit yeah but obviously he's gone into a little bit more detail Ah, at this point in the audio podcast we're going to play um, a few minutes of of a a Norwegian journalist having his say on Erling Haaland obviously it was the big game at the weekend between your two star players how do you think they performed
3: um if you take uh, Martin first uh, maybe an okay game did what he always uh, did he run a lot fought a lot but uh, not many important key passes if you know what I mean so in that part of the game he he wasn't uh, at his best I think Holland uh, <laughs> is uh, another story he he couldn't make it uh, very much. Against Arsenal, um, so little surprised that he he was so out of the game, if you can say it that way, and uh, uh, yeah, it was pretty invisible. Like uh, I see the pundits say that, and another news journalist. So so very surprising that he was so out of the game, like he was.
0: You think that's because of the way. City are playing, or the way that he's playing, because yeah, you know, I've seen both versions of that being discussed.
3: Yeah, I, I uh, to be honest, I, I think so. He's, uh, if you see, uh, Man City use. Uh, right-footed wingers on the left side and uh, and the opposite on the other side and and that and when Kyle Walker and and now guardiol they don't come around that often the it's a pretty conservative way of attacking you might say so uh, so he doesn't get those cross uh, if he, he if he wants to to score goals you have to um you have to get the, the balls in behind the defenders around, along the on the pitch uh, on the grass I mean um, and that's that's obviously very difficult for when you meet teams that they don't let uh, the striker or Holland in this uh, case get any space behind them so 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 when he lacks the crossings it's not so much for him to work on I think um and yes you can say he he it's the way City plays, but when Kevin De Bruyne was there, for example, uh, he would have put in those crossings anyway. So from a little bit deeper down the midfield, or running through in behind, and then putting them in. So, so that I, I, when I look at Holland, I, I think he 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 has to sometimes even on the pitch, even though he's in his own, has to think, wow, I miss Kevin a little bit,
0: <laughs> maybe a to-
3: little, he, yeah.
0: It can't just rely on one player, can it? I take the point that you're making, but I know Gundogan was there last season and would be playing that little pocket behind Haaland and thread through balls. And Mares was on the other side. Foden tended to play a little bit wider. So there were different options. And obviously Alvarez has been playing this season. Um, He didn't play quite as regularly as a partner. Do you think that that's had any influence on him? Because Alvarez is... Has an instinct to shoot himself rather than maybe play one twos and try and pass pass through the midfield. Yeah, I think
3: so. And uh, uh, and I also know from I think from the, the the national team, I think Holland likes to play more alone in that in that area. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if he's too used to have uh, such a good, obviously very good, uh, Alvarez. Uh, but a link-up player there to to you know find the one one twos and 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 the timing with that so a little bit of course difficult to say but um, I think it's uh, yeah and alvers o- also likes to take his own chances obviously and and he's made that with good great success so so no no criticism for him about that but it's been a little bit unusual I think for Holland and mm-hmm. and the games he's scoring is. Uh, yeah, it's not the uh, it's not the top matches like uh, like Arsenal yesterday.
0: Statistically, you can't argue with his goal scoring record. Even this year, he's still on course to get the same number of goals as he got last year. But it does feel as if he's missing chances. And when I look at his body language, and that's one of the advantages of being in the stadium, as I know you were as well, as opposed to watching the game on TV, you can see what he's doing and what he looks like when the camera would be somewhere else. And I could see him a little bit frustrated, a little bit um, disappointed in things. You're probably closer to him, you know, in terms as a journalist than anybody, really. Do you detect that he's getting a little bit frustrated by it all? Yeah,
3: I I, I, I saw the same as you. Uh, I also like to study his body language. How, how is he now? Is he reacting in the right way? Uh, and sometimes I get very surprised that he's uh, he doesn't get the balls right. He he doesn't get the passes he wants. He doesn't get to finish the attacks. But still, he applauds uh, the other players, and and that's that's a good response. But I see it's more and more um, a, a little bit more uh, frustration coming out of his body language. And and I think Pep actually said it quite well uh, that the that even Holland told him that as long as I get my chances, you know, it's 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 easy to tweak. It's small little details maybe uh, that makes you uh, put them in the goal or outside the goal. But uh, now he doesn't get uh, against Arsenal uh, in particular. He 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 doesn't get the chances, and that's um, and not uh, not Wolves either. So um, so that's uh, so that's with knowing that. Pet- said that, refer to that conversation, you understand that what's going on behind the scenes, it's probably a lot of frustration going on now, I think.
0: I think the assumption is that once Rodri's back from this period out and then Kevin De Bruyne returns as well, everything will click again, Haaland will start scoring all the time, City will go back to the top of the table, maybe win the treble again. What what's you're a little bit more objective because you're not a City fan, you're a Norwegian sports journalist who can see these things from a different perspective. What what's your instincts? Do you think that 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 City are not much different than they were and just missing a couple of key players or is there something different about either Haaland or the team this year?
3: <laughs> a little bit difficult to say, but I've seen some some good analysis of, of this city team this year and and, and I see that uh, especially when you bring a player like uh, Doku uh, in that's uh, he doesn't ha- he hasn't uh, played that much but but you see that the, the rhythm uh, that they uh, that they usually have to break through uh, the lines and even the last line defensive line, um, they are struggling a little bit more. Uh, and they have to think a little bit different and Doku doesn't doesn't bring that quality in the crossings either so it is a different uh, City team definitely I think Uh, but then it was the last year but still when you get Rodri back he has an amazing ability not maybe to put Holland in front of the goals but but to to play uh, Alvarez Foden um uh, and Kevin De Bruyne obviously when he's back and, and the other midfielders in between the lines opponents lines and, 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 that, and then it will go faster now you see they use, use two, three touches more in the midfield maybe, uh, maybe the, they don't turn the right way with their body uh, to just break through um, so they're, the tempo when they first want to go penetrate, it's a little bit slower I think maybe than, than, than last season when they were at
0: their best. So the final question, again, you can give a more objective uh, view to this, is are Arsenal the real deal? I mean, a lot of City fans will say they celebrated like they won the title at the Emirates and we're only nine games into a Premier League season. It's a bit early to do that. I do understand them celebrating and I don't blame them for that. But do you think Arsenal, having won that game, are the real deal this year or are we reading too much into one win?
3: I think we I think they're definitely the the biggest rivals with maybe Liverpool but uh, Arsenal I've seen them dominate Fulham totally and they draw 2-2 so they have in their team I think many more weaknesses than the the City team maybe Um, so so and city has i think a, many more ways to attack uh, really if they if they use all their their tools you know with the with the ins and use soland strength in the air a little bit more they have they have some more tools and way to get uh, to score goals so uh, they are also on the real deal uh, obviously bringing declan rice is it's much better balance in that team but but uh, but City still has some more things to uh, to offer uh, the next uh,
0: half year. Is it just a matter of time before Haaland starts scoring every week again? Uh, I, <laughs>
3: I don't think it's just a matter of time uh, because I really think that uh, that uh, he maybe has to he probably has to. Just a little bit to the other players and, and maybe some of the, the new players can uh, use their time good now on, the, on in the trainings after international break to, to crack the codes to, to use him even a little bit more so not a matter of time, You it's the Premier League I see how the defenders they, they, they play with their lives, it's not just like uh, you tweak a little bit and then everything is okay um, so, so they have to work hard, but uh, eventually, when he clicks a little bit more with those uh, players who who is attacking last third, I think uh, it, it it will come back. But uh, it's I don't think it's easy, as easy as you can just do like this.
0: So that's a Norwegian uh, journalist, uh, Mikkel, and thanks very much for him. He was on his way back to Norway after being at the game on Saturday, speaking to me from the airport. Actually, um, an interesting stuff as well. I know you heard that before, Ian. Um, he he didn't say dissimilar things to what we've heard from Haaland, did he? And he, he you know he watches Harland a lot more closely probably than we do because he watches him for the international team as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, what it, he what it kind of surprised me was that he talked about uh, Haaland's aerial strength. And I don't think he's, okay, he might be six foot, whatever he might be. I don't think that is his strength at all. I, I think his strength is is getting that ball whipped across the six-yard box and letting him come onto it and smash it in the net. Um I think we I think there is a tendency here to be, you know, the fact that uh we've lost we've lost two league games and it's the first time it's happened for donkeys years. I mean we we are entitled to have the game. I think the game was pretty poor. I didn't think Arsenal did anything exceptional, although they, they may well have been a little bit more uh competitive. Perhaps it perhaps in those last last five minutes. I think that maybe City came off it a little bit, whereas Arsenal, being the home team, went for it a little bit. But um, I don't think there's uh, anything to be uh, suicidal about. I mean, you know, every football team that's ever been has lost a game and then maybe two games on the trot. Um, I do think that there is a tendency to, what did he say, throw the throw the, what's it out the
0: pram? The baby out, baby with, out with the bath water Yeah, bath no, water. I, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, well, if we're trying to be optimistic then, we look ahead. There's international break, obviously, and then after the international break, City return with a home to Brighton. Let's just look at the league games. Home to Brighton, away to United. They've got Spurs, Villa, and Tottenham all to come so in this next batch of games which looks a tougher sort of seven games eight games than the eight that led up to the one at Arsenal it's more of a challenge isn't it is is this when we find out how good the season 23-24 City team are
1: well I think that's that's right I mean all the best teams, they've lost a couple of games, they all bounce back and they go on a run again. That's that's the first thing. Well, we all know how capable Manchester City are of going on a run. I mean, they did it last year. OK, we, it's wrong of me to keep going back to last year because it, it is last year. Uh, and it remains to be seen whether or not this team is as good as the team of last year. I think it is fair to say that we're, we, we have missed the likes of John Stones. We've missed the likes of Gunderwine a little. Um, obviously, at the minute we we, we haven't got Kevin de Bruyne. I think uh, w- did we win the first six games? And I don't think w- in any of those six games that, that that we won on the on the bounce at the start of the season. I don't think we got near the heights of last year. I mean, I I have a a, a suggestion that. Maybe us as, as, as city followers, perhaps we expect a little bit too much. Um, and I go back to April, the Arsenal game, where I have to say uh, that game against Arsenal was it three one? I think we beat them three one. I think that's as good as I've seen any any club team play ever. And are we are we within our rights to to, to look now and and judge them against that when our team is uh, evolving a little. I think if we were to give them two or three, four months, we might then see games of that level. But I think um, we've been very, very good, but not quite uh, the level that we were at uh, April of last year. Having said that, I know how hard that is to get there. But I, I... happen to think that uh, City are doing doing a really, really good job. The test now comes week in, week out, um, once the international break is finished. Uh, the next game, after the international break, becomes important because if you lose three, then, you know, we, we are starting to see things that, that are different. But, uh, you know, we've got people like uh, Kovacic, Doku, who are who are new to the team? Maybe certainly certainly uh, Doku will be finding his feet. He hasn't got the experience of Kovacic. Um, perhaps he will be a, a a revelation when it when he finds his feet. Let's, have, let's hope us so. Um But I think we are um, as footballers. We are allowed. Um, people have a bad day at work. That's what I'm trying to say. Whether you're an accountant, whether you're a plumber. Whether you're an electrician, some days you're better than other days, and I think um, we are entitled. I mean, let's be right; they've been fantastic for the past what two years
0: at least. This is the great thing about getting you on here. You are the voice of wisdom, and Harlan oh, we'll is, say the that. Voice, <laughs> the, is the voice of passion, and I love Harlan's passion. I, 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 We've I got just... a lovely contrast here of, of of different ways of looking at it, and well.
1: I'm trying to stand up a little bit for Haaland because I I I understand where where he is. If you if you are a finisher and all of a sudden the chances aren't there for you, then it's it is it's it's it's, it's hard work. And if you might try, it's just not going to happen.
2: For for me though, I mean, I grew up watching Sean Gota, uh, Kevin Phillips at Sunderland. You know them them types of strikers. Okay, then the next breed came in. You look at your Sergio Aguero. You look at your Karim Benzema. You look at the 2007 crop that came through, and then you look at the, the strikers of today. You look at Arturo Martinez. Your your current your current top quality strikers. You know, you're Aubameyang. You're you know you. For me, Erling Haaland to be like Sean Gorty, you had to sniff out you had to sniff out opportunities. You had to back into defenders. I'll never forget the goal that he scored here where he swivelled on it and he had his back to back to goal, he swivelled on it and he he, he put it into the, the far left corner. Kevin Phillips was a fox in the box, he sniffed at opportunities and he scored goals, but he put himself about and he ran channels and he, you know, another one, Robbie Keane, another one I grew up watching, somebody that was just ridiculously good at running behind and, and getting the edge on defenders and giving them hell. Paul Dickoff, you know, a wasp as they called him, somebody that never give a defender a moment's rest, even if he, he did get the better of him for five, ten minutes. But the defender got the better of him for eighty minutes. It didn't matter because Paul was very small. He would always still what, try. cause... What would
1: you want from your striker? If you were, if you were, if you were Pep, what would you want? What was the first thing that you would think that the striker's job is?
2: I, I, I know that Pep wants Erling Haaland to be that fox in the box. Ian. I know he wants him to be that box in the box. I know, he, I know he wants him to score as many goals as he can and be alive. Once, once We you know, we don't counter-attack that much, but we transition quite quickly and we try to work the ball in behind the opposition. And he's looking for maybe two or three opportunities to, like you said earlier on, Ian, come across the box from a Doku or a Grealish or a Kyle Walker or a Bernardo Silva for Erling to tap home. Quite frankly, though, the goal at West Ham last year, or one of the goals at West Ham where we won 2-0, I haven't seen Erling Haaland do that too many times where De Bruyne... And yes, it was De Bruyne, correct. De Bruyne is unbelievable at finding him. But I've never seen him as eager to, to be on the last man and to run in behind and wait for that pass to come. And the reason why other players won't play that pass, that risky pass, that one where they're willing to let go of the ball and play it beyond the back line of the opposition, with the trust in Haaland that he will be one, ready on his tiptoes and alive to attack the ball as soon as it's fizzed in behind the opposition. They don't play it because he's flat-footed. When they look up and they scan the pitch and they see him looking down at his feet, they don't see him really ready. He was jogging around the pitch yesterday at 0-0 against Arsenal in a big game. In transition, when they had committed men forward on the break, he stood there with his with his head down. I was thinking, you, you, you're playing for Manchester City against Arsenal in a big game. He scored 52 goals last year. Is that part of the problem? He didn't look hungry. He didn't look like he wanted it. And do you know what? We've not mentioned this yet, Ian. And, and to divert from Haaland a tiny bit, but for a sec- for a second. Another thing that Pep got wrong yesterday was why the hell did Matteo Kovacic come out for the second half? He was he was completely and utterly tied up by his manager at halftime. By sending him back out for the second half, Kovacic wasn't he wasn't on the pitch. In his mind, because he couldn't touch anyone, he couldn't affect the game. He couldn't. I saw him at one stage, stood behind Harland, staying away from any midfield action, for the pure fact that he knew that if he touched somebody, because of the one that he'd gotten away with, he'd be going off, which would affect us even more. Pep sending Kovacic out for the second half yesterday, and then bringing him off for Nunes anyway, was 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 was, 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 was it was silly. It was silly because we lost we lost fifteen minutes. Of that. In fact, we lost twenty minutes of the football match with Kovacic on the pitch where we could have affected the midfield battle more. He nullified Kovacic because he didn't take him off the pitch when he was vulnerable, when he was on a yellow card, and he'd made another silly challenge, which for me he should have gone off for. You know, and and and, 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 and then to bring him off anyway twenty minutes later when I thought that we could have got a foothold in the game at sixty minutes was just it was it was poor. It was poor. And if you ask Matteo Kovacic, to be honest. I'm sure he'd say the same thing. I'm sure he'd say, I don't even understand why the manager didn't protect me and bring me off. And this this, this goes on the other side of everything that, that people feel they need to do, and that's defend Pep left, right and centre. You know, are, are, are we naive to think that Pep was right with the with the Cancelo business? Are we right to think that Pep was right with the Leroy Sane business? Are we right to think that Pep Guardiola is always correct when it comes to decisions like that? Or is it that Pep Guardiola is the manager he's in, he's in charge, he's had as much success as he has, which buys him an outright defence when it comes to making silly decisions, you know, or, or, or decisions where we don't hear both sides of the story. We've never heard from Sane. We've never heard from Cancelo. We've never heard from these players. We've never heard from Yaya or Joe Hart on any of these banishments or the fact that he's, you know, this links to why is Yaya Torre not got a statue? What? Because Pep didn't like him. You know, Yaya Torre was responsible for every good thing we did under Mancini and Pellegrini. You know, he is the man that, if anyone, not, you know, Aguero, Silva, company. Well, Yaya, for me, was the first one to get a statue. Not the fourth. You know, company said it in his speech. Company said it in his speech. FA Cup, semi-final, Yaya Torre. FA Cup final, Yaya Torre. Two, two goals against Newcastle to get us into the QPR game on track. Yaya Torre. Okay fourth goal against Aston Villa, OK, the game was won, but long-busting run, Yaya yeah, yeah, Torre. He was a talismanic player, Ian. He scored 20 goals, OK, and got, what was it, 16 assists in the 2013-14 season and drove us to the title, Yaya yeah, yeah, Tore. And that man hasn't got a statue because Pep had a fallout with him and Dimitri Salou. And we're supposed to believe that Pep was 100% right in that whole debacle. Not having it. You know, he's a beautiful manager, absolute genius, brought us a treble, has brought us success that I couldn't have even dreamed of, dreamed of as a kid, but he is not immune to criticism, and he left Kovacic on the pitch yesterday, and that cost us we lost the game because of a, of a deflected effort but we could have won the game if Kovacic have not been on the pitch, if we'd have removed him and changed the dynamic in midfield earlier, if Doku would have played from the beginning of the game okay, I think that we win the football match and if Erling Haaland would have gone off instead of Alvarez, I think we'd want to win the football, match. Just don't think that we are ticking the way we should at the moment. And I, I completely understand where you're coming from, Ian. And I'm quite an optimist. You'll ask Ian, I'm, I'm, I'm a supreme optimist. But we're not ticking right. I do think, yeah, it is only one or two games and I, I'll take your point on. But there is something a bit wrong at the moment and it it, it it's it comes from the manager and it comes from the front. Um, if Erling's not Alive, and he's not motivated enough, and he is complacent. Then I, I think, I think a, a, you know a little, a little cameo from the bench could do him a bit of good. And I think that Alvarez should be rewarded for the desire, determination, and hard work he's put in this season. He should be starting games as the uh, as the number nine. I've
0: got to tell you, this has been a fascinating podcast. There's been the nostalgia and uh, the opinion over. Two-time European Cup winner and and all the trophies that you've you've won in. We've had the the passion and analysis from Haal and Lots of thought provoking stuff in that. Um, it's been a delight to present it. Um, and thanks very much of course to Michal the uh, Norwegian journalist as well next week I'm going to do a podcast from a supporters club branch um, so rather than doing it the way we normally do it, um, we're going to go out to a supporters club branch and get some of the members of that supporters club to talk about the things that, that they care about whether that be their supporters club itself or the football on the pitch or stuff off the pitch, I'm going to let them set the agenda but Ian Boyer I can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending an hour with us tonight. Really appreciate that, and as far as I'm concerned, you are one of football's greatest ever legends. I can't say it stronger than that. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure listening to Harland.
2: Thank you, mate. <laughs> Listen, Ian, I I completely respect your stance, and I just want to say, you know, in any in, in no way, shape, or form, am I am I thinking of this as a as a throwaway, uh, young naive. Kid. It just you know, I, I I I've seen this team play the best football that I will probably ever see in my lifetime. Yeah. Ed Guardiola is hugely responsible for that tactically, motivationally, and you know he, he's, he's revolutionised football. But, but the point I made earlier is that I don't think he's immune to criticism. I don't think we should put him on a pedestal nobody, where he is.
1: Nobody in football is immune to is immune to football because football, whatever it is, it's a public sport. And being part of a public sport, you are wide open to to be praised, to be yeah. absolutely slaughtered. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yours, you know, will,
1: yours will be different from somebody else's. Nobody can say yours is right and, and his is wrong.
2: No, so no, And, and do you know what? That's what I, it, the game is. Yeah, but I love Pett, Okay, I love him for what he brought to the football club. The thing is, I, I've I've suffered at the hands of trolls. Okay, I've I, broadcasting. Ian's been a huge mentor to me in terms of that. I've had people criticise me, and do you know what? It comes with the territory, and you have to take it. Yeah, and you yeah. listen to the people that you want to listen to, and you don't listen to the people that you don't. So Pep Guardiola might not care less what I think. Okay, he's that strong-minded and he's that motivated that he trusts his own judgement and he will do what he needs to do, regardless of what Howland from from writing and all them think. Yeah. The point I'm trying to make is this, that that I'm not slandering Pep. I I appreciate him. It's just that I I genuinely think that sometimes he can get caught up in his own mind that much, that his decision-making, his stubbornness, his lack of willingness to change things, even when he knows this should be changed in a game. Being right is more important than the win, sometimes, in my honest opinion. And I think that there's no better example than that of wanting to be the first ever manager to win a Champions League final without a holder midfielder. And it bit him on the backside. And I think, I genuinely do think that the game against Chelsea in the Champions League final, the first one we played in, Pep Guardiola was in in one way thinking, I want to be the first manager to win the Champions League final without playing a holder midfielder. Okay? And by doing that and by giving into the temptation, it cost us. Okay? Yes, we've gone and won it since. But I do sometimes think that his decisions for him and not for the football team
0: do guys thank you so so much for for tonight's podcast um we'll get you on again Ian if you're up for it um you're a but, legend by the way Ian you're a legend absolutely well you'
1: you're becoming a legend
2: <laughs> I do admire what you've done in football and I and honestly the fact that you played for Brian is is that's special um I never watched Brian's football teams play I never He's I never saw a... Brian manage I, I you know I can't claim to have done but it's, it's it's a pleasure for me to tell you that as a 29-year-old, I've gone back into the archives, I've read up on his story. I admire him and Peter Taylor and their effects on Derby County and Nottingham Forest. Yeah. You know, I know that it is quite mad, actually, because I know that Frank Barber was the chairman down at Brighton then. And now his son, I think, is the chairman at Brighton now. Yeah. And I know that Brian and Peter accepted the job. Then Brian went to, to Leeds. And, you know, I, I know the whole backstory of that. But to meet somebody and to speak to somebody that played for the legend that is Brian Clough and somebody that that did believe, similarly to Pep, that football shouldn't be played in the sky and that if it was meant to be, that there'd be grass up there. Um, It's fantastic to speak to you.
0: Well, All right. thanks very so much to AMR Development UK, of course, for sponsoring the podcast um, as well. And, and thanks to you for listening. You know what? If ever there's a podcast to share and tell everybody about, this is the one, isn't it? You've had everything in this. Um, so... Two weeks till uh, the next game, one week till the next podcast and that will be a special coming from a supporters club branch and then we'll be back after the Brighton game to reflect on City's return to action after the international break. Have a great week. Thanks very much to Harlan. Thanks very much to uh, Ian Boyer, our special guest. And uh, just remember this, even in a week when City have slipped again, it's great to be a Blue.